Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. This film blew me away. What's your favorite scary movie? McLovin? You can't handle the truth. That escalated quickly. And the winner is We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. Hello and welcome along to this week's We Love Movies with me, Gordon Hayden. Now, with cinemas closed around the country this week, we're going to focus on new films available on streaming services and other releases to DVD and Blu-ray. And also, we've got a bit of a horror theme to this week's show. We're going to look at horror sequels. Now, we're not looking at the really good ones. We're looking at some of the dreadful ones. The type of sequels that you go, that really shouldn't have gotten made because the first film was a real one and done. It didn't really need any sequels, but good old Hollywood saw dollar signs and thought, you know what, we're going to milk this for all it's worth. So we're going to look at the particular horror franchises which really diminished in quality with sequels. And keeping with all things horror, we're going to delve into the career of Stephen King and look at some of his film adaptations, the ones that really, really work, some of the ones that really stand up and the the filmmakers that just seem to really get Stephen King's work. So if you're a Stephen King fan, we're going to be looking at his film adaptations a little later on on We Love Movies. So lots to come on this week's show with me, Gordon Hayden. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. Now we love movies, we are going to look at new releases and unfortunately cinemas are not open, but there are still new films too. Well, I say new films, films that definitely had their cinema release that are now playing on some streaming services. And we're also going to look at some releases on Blu-ray and DVD as well. And joining me now to cast his eye on some of this week's new releases is Chris Wasser. Chris, uh, good to speak to you as always. It wasn't obviously large pickings this week, but you have picked out the best on offer this weekend. And first out of the traps is Just Mercy, which stars Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx. Chris, I have to be honest with you. When I saw this film, I went in knowing very little. All I knew was that it was going to be some sort of court drama. That was it. Knew knew more than that. But I, I was this film gripped me a lot more than I was expecting, so much so that I stuck around at the end credits and just trying to take it all in and not realizing, Chris, that this is a true story. Exactly. And we had a huge chat after that screening and it kind of scares me that I think that screening was right at the beginning of the year because that feels like about five years ago, Gordon, at this stage. Um, But just mercy. It's one of a handful of films that released at the start of the year had this major Oscar buzz and just kind of got forgotten about. You know, every year at the Oscars, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what it's like next year. Every year you have all of these hugely, huge hyped films that are based on real stories and might be courtroom dramas like this one is. And there's so much of a push behind them and they just can't compete with those three or four big ones that everyone talks about. But with this, you had uh, an amazing cast. you got Jamie Foxx, the best he's been in years. You had uh, Michael B. Jordan, who is, you know, hot property off the back of Black Panther, off the back of the Creed franchise, but a movie star who's also who also happens to be uh, an incredibly talented actor as well. And there aren't too many of them. And you also had Brie Larson, Oscar winner. And as you say, it is based on a true story and it is uh, it's set in Alabama. It's set in the 1980s and it's about a man who was wrongfully convicted, charged and imprisoned for a murder he did not commit. And Jamie Foxx plays the man. His name was Walter Johnny uh, Walter. Everybody called him Johnny, but Walter uh, uh, McMillian. And 
Brian Stevenson is this, you know, ambitious Harvard Law graduate. Uh, he's played by Michael B. Jordan. And he takes on Walter's case years after, you know, he's been on death row for years. But Brian Stevenson thinks this is going to be the case. I'm going to help this man. You know, he's kind of looking at cases where people have been wrongfully convicted sometimes for, you know, for the color of their skin. Mm. And he tries to basically, you know, review and appeal uh, Macmillan's case with the help of a local Alabama woman who's getting into law, played by Brie Larson. And, you know, look, I don't want to spoil what happens next, but, you know, it's probably anyone who's heard about this case and it would have been on the news if you've seen it, you know, you, you'll, you'll know the outcome. But it's one of those great courtroom dramas that even if you do know the outcome, it's the suspense, it's the way it's directed, it's the screenplay, it all keeps you on board, it keeps you guessing right up until the end. And I think the performances as well, we talked about this at the start of the year, Jamie Foxx, who's just been kind of phoning it in, you know, mm. so much over the past 10 years, or even since he won that Oscar for Ray. I thought he really dug deep here. And I thought he really showed us, reminded us that he is a serious talent when he wants to be. And also when he has the right material. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Yeah, I it was a film I thought it really worked. It, was, it had a bit of a conventional feel at times. There were certain yes. subplots that you kind of go, yeah, I can kind of see that's a little bit signposted there in terms of how it's going to play out. You kind of being there, done that. And I think maybe some artistic license may have been taken. But overall, a very strong film. Before we move on, Chris, let's just take a little clip from Just Mercy, which is now available on Now TV. If we say we're committed to equal justice under law, to protecting the rights of every citizen, regardless of wealth, race, or status, then we have to end this nightmare for Walter McMillan and his family. The charges against them have been proven to be a false construction of desperate people, fueled by bigotry and bias, who ignored the truth in exchange for easy solutions, and that's not the law. That's not justice. That's not right. Now, Chris, we're going to move on to all things Netflix. Uh, there are two of note out this week. Uh, Ryan Murphy, my God, that man's a, a busy man, isn't he? This is the fellow of Glee fame and uh, American Horror Story, just to name but a few of his uh, past credits. He's got the boys in the band. And then we also have a romantic comedy that I really need to check out, Juliet Naked, which is from Nick Hornby. Ethan Hawke is in this, along with Rose Byrne and Chris O'Dowd. To my shame, I still haven't seen that, Chris, and I'm going to have to rectify that this weekend. But let's start with The Boys in the Band. What's this all about? Uh, the Boys in the Band is actually, uh, yeah, it is Ryan Murphy again. And you know what, Gordon, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to think that Ryan Murphy is not human, um, that he does not sleep, and that he may we maybe need a break from him because Ryan Murphy is all over the place at the minute. He has a new film out at Christmas called The Prom. Uh, he is the producer, and, you know, I think he developed and he has written a few episodes of Ratchet, which I don't want to go anywhere near because I think it is completely unnecessary, but we'll talk about that another day. Um, and he is just also involved in, look, any uh, the, an American horror story, the uh, uh, true crime stories, you know, the next one that we're going to see is focused on the uh, Bill Clinton uh, uh, impeachment case. Anything, anytime I see Ryan Murphy's name, I think, oh, we're going to get something very soapy here. It's mm. going, it, it, especially if it's, if, it's, if it's based on a true story, you know, he's going to kind of paper over the, the 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 cracks we're going to see you know a very kind of uh, uh melodramatic version of events but what we're dealing with here is a play from the 1960s which I'm, i wasn't actually familiar with and the I, I suppose the good bit about this is that Ryan Murphy didn't direct this. So it's Joe Montello uh, directing a 1968 play by Mars uh, uh, Crowley. You've got a wonderful cast there. Um, you know, Matt Bomer, who we would have seen um, 
uh, what was the and name Pop- of the Pop- Irish? Papi Chulo. Papi Chulo. Wonderful, wonderful film. Uh, you've got uh, Zachary Quinto. You've got uh, uh, Jim Parsons from The Big Bang Theory. And it revolves around, well, at least the play does. So I'm, I'm assuming, I haven't, we haven't watched this yet, but I'm assuming that the, the, the play or the film, uh, it picks up where the play left off and it revolves around one night in the lives of uh, a group of gay men in Manhattan in the 1960s at a birthday party. And there's a bit of a musical energy to it. And look, it's a wonderful cast. It's just, I hope it's not another typical Ryan Murphy film because I know my John Montello is directing this, but Ryan Murphy does tend to leave his stamp on everything, even if he's just showing up on set one day. And Chris, just time is up against us. So just to quickly get your thoughts on another Netflix release this weekend, Juliet Naked, as I mentioned, Chris O'Dowd, Rose Byrne, Ethan Hawke is in it. And also, I just want to mention, if we were to move away from Netflix, A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, which is available on DVD and Blu-ray. Tom Hanks stars in this film, which is sort of a, it's a sort of a loose biopic of uh, Mr. Rogers. Yes, yeah. Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood is our DVD and Blu-ray pick of the week. Um it is actually not a Tom Hanks film. It is a Marielle Heller film, but what I mean by that is Tom Hanks is very much a supporting character in his own picture here, but he is playing Mr. Rogers, who's being profiled for a magazine piece. And Tom Hanks, you know, Mr. Rogers was very much, you know, uh, an, an American icon. And even watching this film, I was thinking, you know, look, I didn't grow up with this character. But by the time the film finished, I was a broken man. I just thought Hanks was just sensational in this. Yes. So Grace, even if you did not grow up, with this American institution. And then on the other side, we have Juliet Naked, which for me has now over, uh, overtaken um, uh, High Fidelity in terms of my favorite films based on Nick Hornby novels, because this is just sensational. And again, not many people went to see this in the cinema. You've got Ethan Hawke, you've got Rose Byrne, you've got Chris O'Dowd, and it's a very simple story about a, a, a woman who is married to a complete music nerd. This is Chris O'Dowd and Ambrose Byrne. He is fascinated with this sort of Jeff, uh, uh, Jeff Buckley type figure who completely disappeared into, you know, obscurity back in the 90s. And she writes a review of this new, you know, collection of songs that, 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 that's that been released, you know, these B-sides or whatever. And the real musician played by Ethan Hawke picks up on it and starts this email correspondence, which eventually turns into a friendship, which might even turn into a romance. And the music there knows nothing about it. It is every bit as weird as it sounds, but it's also quite lovely. It's mm-hmm. very, very funny. It shows that Ethan Hawke should be making more comedies. And it also shows that Rose Byrne should be getting the lead in more films like this. It's wonderful. Oh, excellent stuff. So that is uh, Juliet Naked. Before that, A Beautiful uh, Day in the Neighbourhood, which I have to say is fantastic. Uh, the Boys in the Band, another Netflix release. And our main film to check out this weekend is from Now TV, Just Mercy, starring Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx. Chris Wasser, thank you so much. We will chat to you again a little later on. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. Now we love movies. It is time for the movie news. And Andy McCarroll joins me, as always, each and every week to dish it up. Andy, there's been so many changes to release dates. And I think now we can pretty safely say 2020 is a bit of a write-off, especially when it comes to the blockbuster side of it, uh, things. I would be shocked if Wonder Woman makes the release date in December. I can't see why Warner Brothers would want to release it in December, bearing in mind Tenet hasn't done the business for them. But anyway... That's chat for another day because there is lots going on. We're going to focus on Jurassic World, Dominion, The Batman, Shazam 2, The Flash and The Matrix. So um, state of play, Andy, in terms of films that are shifting from their original release date. Let's begin with the new Jurassic Park. Yeah, we got a Jurassic World, I should say. Jurassic World. Yeah, there's there's way too many. uh, 
Strixes after this title. Now it's Jurassic Park World slash Dominion. Uh, yeah, we got a new poster for that this week as well. Kind of looks like the the bat signal version of the the dinosaur skull of the original. And then the little you know the the big reveal from that poster was that the film won't be coming out in June eleventh, twenty twenty one, as we had thought. It's actually moved to the same date in twenty twenty two. So. It looks like we're going to be getting more animated series as opposed to live action Jurassic Park slash world for at least two years now. Also, Batman has been pushed back. That's also been delayed to 2022. Shazam 2 has been pushed back. The Flash Dune, which was supposed to be our June, however you pronounce it, was supposed to be coming out at Christmas this year. That's gone back now to October 2021. And we've also got, you know, the 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 kind of the other twist in that is that the matrix is after taking the batman's release date so that's after moving up from 2022 and that'll be released uh, six months earlier now in 2021 if you're keeping track of any of that you're a far better man than i am basically <laughs> 2020 is a write-off is, is the main thing like you said to take from all of that yeah it's interesting that the, the matrix has moved up where all other films are you know have really shifted their release date now because they're over in berlin at the moment and they've been shooting quite a lot in and around Germany. So uh, obviously restriction wise, they have been quite successful in getting quite a lot in the can as it were, hence why they're able to move up the release date, I would assume. Yeah, I also think there's going to be a a lot of tie-ins. Like your things there, you've got, you know, Shazam, Batman, The Flash that could potentially be occupying the same, you know, DC cinematic universe. So if there's anything that ties into that, if you shift one, you kind of have to shift the other if the, the storyline is going to be running in, in any sort of timeline. But based on what DC have done so far, I don't think any of that particularly matters. You've got uh, the Snyder Cut then dropping in the middle of all of that. So yeah. what this does for the DC slate, if they're just going to write the whole thing off and not do what Marvel have done and just basically make it their own kind of standalone, I think that would be best for them now at the moment, especially considering you know it's, it's going to be at least a year before we see any of these films. And Shazam too, when you think about it, Andy, that means it's going to be five years between Shazam movies. It's a hell of a long time for such a fledgling superhero. Uh, and then the Batman, God, that film feels like it's been cursed because I know that some people have been cursing Robert Pattinson because he kind of glibly said, oh, I haven't been working out for this. And there's been sort of rumors on set that Matt Reeves hasn't been particularly happy about his size at the moment. And there's been a lot of action scenes. They've been using stuntmen because they're a bit more big and bulky. Now, I don't know. That could be an awful lot of hearsay as well. But maybe shifting Batman to to uh, the 2022 slot may actually do Matt Reeves the world of good. But there's lots to, de- to delve into there that we will over the coming uh, weeks when we find out how things are progressing with those uh, shooting schedules. Um, Cineworld, Andy, this is a bit of sad news because if things keep going the way they're going, we're not going to have Cineworld anymore. Yeah, it looks like this was the, obviously Bond was going to be scheduled to be the the big release now and off the back of, of Tenet. This was going to be you know, the next saviour of cinema. Unfortunately, that appears to be the straw that broke the camel's back. There was an email sent to staff by the, the chief executive with, with the great name Mookie Greedinger, who said that we've seen audience members dwindle to tiny and unsustainable levels and the delay of Bond has been a massive blow. And with that, we're going to be reviewing the roles of all staff. It looks like there's going to be about 45,000 staff in total being affected by the closures. Obviously, at home here, the, the one in Parnell Street has kind of been closed indefinitely. The kind of the big issue around this is Cineworld had this, you know, aggressive expansion a couple of years ago, which left them, you know, close to eight million or eight billion, I beg your pardon, in debt. And with 
pretty much zero income at the moment. Like it costs about 50 to 60 million a month to keep all those cinema screens running. Wow. No money coming in at all. Like you, you look at the box office figures, you know, you're, you're talking hundreds of thousands rather than millions and billions at the moment. So uh, the thing with that, like we've talked about, you know, all the big films kind of move into 2021, 2022. If it keeps going the way it's going, like that's like, where are they going to be releasing these films too? Because there's not a hell of a lot of cinemas from the sounds of it going to be left, especially a lot of the big chains are going to fold. If you know stocks and shareholders to be thinking about now, the, the Cineworld stock has dropped, I think, about 60%. It, wow. it's, it's hard to think, you know, without a big blockbuster or a sustainable business model, that's not going to work. And I don't think, you know, this is going to survive, you know, six, seven months until the next big release. So I think, you know, students need to have to kind of bite the bullet on a couple of films here in order to, you know, sustain the industry. Otherwise, you know, releasing, as you said, Shazam 2, five years after, it might be, you know, video on demand or, you know, going back into extra vision and chartbusters. Yeah, it's, oh my God, Andy, it's such uncertain times, isn't it? Um, Andy, just to, to move on to a couple of other um, stories, Mission Impossible 7, Tom Cruise is always trying to outdo himself with each film when it comes to a big stunt, but there has been some footage that has um, revealed some sort of an insane stunt that he's planning. Yeah, it look, he's seen here on this kind of performing a stunt on the top of the train and like a speeding train of course for me the the part that sticks out and the part that's not even going to be in the film is that this train is ripping along at however many miles an hour between takes and Tom Cruise is just like casually sitting off the side legs dangling off just kind of waving to you know passing by paparazzi and fans who were trying to take videos of him he's absolutely insane there was even the one the, the stunt a couple of weeks ago where we saw the you know the motorbike going off a, a big runway off a cliff and then there was the reveal he's doing it himself but he has the helmet on so you're thinking like he's doing these things that could easily be done by a stuntman because you don't actually see his face in it he is made of something completely different like the guy is what over 50 years old now he still looks 20 honest to god i'm going to start googling scientology after this because there must be something into it like if, if you can still do that at his age you know I'm, I'm falling apart and i'm in my 30 so maybe a bit of that you know crystals or tiger blood or whatever it is they do there is exactly what i need <laughs> very funny Andy. and finally Andy, finally finally um robert downey jr um there are plans to make a third a Sherlock Holmes movie and Dexter Fletcher has been tapped to film it. Um, Dexter Fletcher, for those that don't know, he recently held Rocketman and he made um, Eddie the Eagle. He was an actor in his own right, um, a child actor. He was in like Dogs of Bugsy Malone and he's been in like Press Gang, if anyone remember that TV series and Layer Cake and that. So he's very much sort of in the sort of with Guy Ritchie and Matthew Vaughn, but like he has had huge success of late as a film director. So anyway, he's uh, attached to direct the third Sherlock Holmes movie. But Robert Downey Jr. wants to do more than just make sequels, Andy. What's going on? Yeah, he was talking at a, an innovation festival, which is about the most Iron Man thing you could possibly see. And he said he wants to turn the Sherlock Holmes movies into a connected universe, starting with a third movie. He says at this point, it doesn't feel like there's a kind of a mystery verse universe. He says you've got your, your Benoit Blancs and your uh, Hugo Poirier. Uh, Hugo Poirier, he's up in there. Poirot. Uh, Poirier. Poirot, better again. I'm talking about, you know, Deadline Day was last week. I'm still thinking about footballers. <laughs> and he says he wants to do a kind of a, a mystery universe in that sense. I, I don't know if that's like, does anyone even want a third Sherlock Holmes film, let alone he's talking about he wants to, you know, have spin-off movies. He wants to build it out with like tying into things like HBO and HBO Max. 
I don't know if there's a, an appetite for that there. I think definitely some sort of mystery unit, even like the, the Knives Out thing with the sequel with, you know, the Daniel Craig's character. I could see something like that. But honestly, like, can anyone even remember any detail apart from any, you know, the, the kind of the, the boxing kung fu he was doing from the Sherlock Holmes films? They're not ones that I think people are clamoring for that third film as much as he wants to think. It's He thought Doolittle was a good idea. So I'm not sure if his judgment has been the best since he took off the Iron Man suit. That's very true. Um, yeah, I, I don't think so. Absolutely. I think with, what they really need to do, to do with the next third Sherlock Holmes movie is get away from that geezer gangster shtick and actually go down the Hound of the Baskervilles route and really bring around the sort of the, the horror element into it, the real supernatural side of it. But it, that all remains to be seen. Andy McCarroll, thank you so much. Um, Andy's going to be back in part two of the show because part two is going to have very much a horror flavor to it because we're going to be looking at horror sequels the type of sequels that really shouldn't have existed because the first film really felt like a one and done. But of course, Hollywood producers got their way and because they saw money and they wanted to tread out a whole range of films off the back of a superior original film. And unfortunately, they diluted in quality. But that's to come very shortly on We Love Movies. Plus, we're going to be looking at the work of Stephen King. We Love Movies is back very soon. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. Welcome back to part two of We Love Movies with me, Gordon Hayden. Now, this part of the show is going to be all things horror. And Andy McCarroll joins me once again to look at some really poor sequels, some terrible horror sequels that never really needed to exist. But the only reason they do exist is because of money, but it resulted in diminishing returns. Andy, we're going to begin with Halloween, one of the all-time great horror movies from John Carpenter. Now, he did leave a very much an open ending, but I think for him, he felt that that ending wasn't really setting up a sequel, but more just to get under the skin of the audience and make them feel as if the, the, the boogeyman is still out there, even when they leave the cinema. But some of the sequels have been shocking, Andy, have been so, so poor. How do you feel about the Halloween sequels? Yeah, I 100% agree with you on that. Like, it's a kind of it's a horror movie trope. Even the kid, people remember things like Carrie, where you know the hand coming out of the grave at the end. There's always that little stinger at the end of most horror films. You know, the, the monster, or the evil is still out there. But these aren't ones that were, you know, they're not setting up for sequels. It's just, you know, horror being horror, essentially. I think the Halloweens, I recently rewatched the the first film I'm doing, my, you know, run up to Halloween. Uh, rewatch of a lot of classic horror films it still holds up it's still absolutely incredible and i think the more that has gone on the more it's diluted the original as well because if they've added things to the mythos that's it's not kind of taken away from it as well you know like the introduction that laurie and michael are, are related kind of ruins that it makes it you know it gives them a focus and a purpose rather than you know this is just somebody who could show up anywhere and i like that danny mcbride of all people who done the the halloween uh, reboot sequel remake whatever you want to call it said you know if you just have him chasing a sister it doesn't mean anything to anyone else and this is a series that has like the the poster boy for going completely off the rails like you, you've introduced the fact that brother and sister then you've got you know the 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 cult of Thorn involved, like got the cult of Thorn involved in some point. You have them, you know, coming back to high school. You have the introduction then again in, in the recent Jamie Lee Curtis one. It's just an absolute mess. Like the guy was, you know, the, the babysitter killer was based on real murders originally, to the point where you have like Buster Rhymes trying to you know kung fu kick him out a window. You kind of think, well, how far <laughs> have we fallen in in those few years? 
<laughs> that's so true but it's not terrible that was the eighth one wasn't the halloween resurrection one of the first films i reviewed for spin oh my god it was so so bad andy let's move on to scream i adored scream i think that first film is just superior to the rest and it had ended in, in again in a way where you felt like that's it now they've they've done that but it became it was such a box office behemoth. Dimension films were like, you're craving, you can crack out another one. Now, the second film, unfortunately, the script got leaked, so they did have to make some severe changes to it. I've never been a massive fan of the sequels. We've spoken about it before on this show, Andy, where the fourth film is very much forgotten, and now we're getting a fifth film, which will be coming out whenever uh, cinemas uh, reopen again. But um, Scream sequels, again, how did, the, how did those ones sit with you? Yeah, and again, this is one that you're talking about, like, deluding the original. Like, the first film, Scream, is supposed to be a kind of, you know, turning the, the, you know, the camera onto horror movies themselves and talking about, you know, all these ridiculous tropes that they have. And it's even mentioned, you know, like, the, the sequels, the sequels are, you know, the horror film sequels have destroyed the genre. They're terrible. And then, of course, the first film makes money and then they try and kind of, play that in slightly to the second film they completely abandon the idea by like halfway through they have that one conversation in the classroom where they say you know sequels are by definition inferior films that didn't bother they plowed on through the scream three where it's just become you know a normal slasher film that the first film was essentially parodying it was still like a good horror film but that first film exists to kind of you know shine a light on the horror genre and show like here's all these ridiculous mistakes you're making and in the space of two films you know it's flipped and scream is making the exact same mistakes itself yeah, that's so true, Andy. The Shining. Now, at first I was a bit like, oh, the sequels to The Shining, my, my mind just went blank, but you reminded me off air, Andy, about Doctor Sleep. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that film's got how much that came and went. Now, Mike Flanagan, the director of this, it seemed, Andy, that it wasn't like he was just trying to make a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's adaptation, but also to the book as well. So the film kind of fell between two stools, I felt, and didn't really work. What did you think of Doctor Sleep? Yeah, I thought the exact same thing as you. It kind of it came and went. It, it's, you're trying to serve two masters. You have two people like Stanley Kubrick, whatever you, you think of The Shining, it's going kind to of recognize a classic now. That's his film. His, that's his take of The Shining. And Stephen King absolutely hated it. He referred to it as a beautiful car with no engine. Stephen King, he said, is kind of the most personal book of his because he was, you know, writing this about his his alcoholism and his addiction issues. None of that was in Stanley Kubrick's film. Mike Flanagan then had the kind of unenviable task of, okay, I'm trying to make a sequel to a, a film that had nothing to do with a book and a book that had nothing to do with a film, and keep everybody happy in the meantime. And in the end, I don't think anybody was happy with the with the result. It's got to be like you're one of the biggest horror fans I know and I had to remind you this film existed and it was well, what last year it came out so I, I think this is going to be the one that you kind of you know think of in a few years it'll be a, a trivia question what's the sequel to The Shine and everybody will kind of be scratching their heads going there isn't one oh so true Andy let's just bounce around very quickly um, a couple of other horror sequels here um, when you think of Hannibal Lecter you, we all straight away you think of Silence of the Lambs but the follow up Hannibal oh my god Andy like what was Ridley Scott thinking it, maybe just the paycheck that didn't work and Red Dragon oh it's directed by Brett Ratner I always feel if it was a stronger director how different that film could have been and then when it comes to the likes of Blair Witch uh God, those sequels are just forgettable. Like, again, they, they just did not need to exist. They only exist because the first film was such a massive success. Again, with those movies, Andy, do, do, are there any bright spots in those sequels? I think if you're going for kind of the strongest series in that, I think the Science of the Lambs one, they made Red Dragon, which was, you know, essentially a bad version of Manhunter. 
that character in Silence of the Lambs. Like the, I know he was introduced initially in Manhunter, but Anthony Hopkins played that so absolutely perfect. And the more you kind of strip away, you know, the, the mystique and kind of humanize him, it, it ruins the impact of the character. Like Hannibal is, it's a terrible book and it's a, you know probably an even worse film. And then you have things like Hannibal Rising, where you're trying to make this kind of superhero origin film of, you know, a cold-blooded serial killer and trying to justify his actions. Again, stripping away the mystique as opposed to this kind of, cold as ice killer that he was inside the lounge where you're getting you're terrified walking down a corridor to you know by the end you're you know sitting in a playground you know handcuffing him to a fridge and it's just it, it made it silly as opposed to like really chilling and threatening that the, the original movie was and he very finally saw we're getting a new saw movie which will make it the eighth of the series uh, we've got as a chris rock um is behind us and uh, which seems such a mad choice. But anyone saw the trailer, they're definitely trying to go down the seven-esque route with it. Samuel L. Jackson pops up there, probably as a favour for uh, Chris Rock. But if we rewind to that first film when it came out, James Wan, Lee Whannell, the two Australians who went stateside and had massive success. I have to say, that first Saw movie, brilliant. In terms of the sequels, oh, they're such a hit and miss affair altogether. They're, they're, they're more bad than good. The, the, the Saw sequels, did any stand out? Yeah, the fact that it's actually the ninth and not the eighth is, you know, the fact it's been completely diluted with this. Like, there's nothing that stands out. The second film is semi-watchable. For me, though, like, I think if they had a stopped with Saw, like this for me, like Halloween, you know, you're still Mike Myers is still kind of the iconic horror movie icon. Hannibal Lecter still, you know, that you've got Ghostface from Scream. I think the one that's been done the dirtiest by this is the Saw films. I think had you left that at the first film, this would be considered a classic. Like for me, this would be up there with Seven as you know one of the best you know serial killer psychological thrillers of all time. Mm. And a, a testament to that is the fact that the twist doesn't take anything away from the film. Like you watch something like The Sixth Sense, you know, you watch it the first time, the twist is the big reveal. Then you can watch it the second time, pointing for the little hints. And then on its in and of itself, it's not a great film to watch once you know the end. This film when you know the end there's still so much going on the performances are great the music is fantastic it's so grimy and atmospheric you can watch it knowing every detail about it and still find kind of something new to enjoy there's great scares in it it's it's one of the you know for a film that like you said to spawn eight sequels it's very underrated as a film on its own because of what's happened later with all the traps and the gore and you know the, the never-ending sequels every halloween i think for about 10 years we had a Saw film, now it's going to be rebooting again. But I genuinely think had they stopped after one, Saw would be talked about in the same kind of breath as you know things like Zodiac and Seven as, as one of the, the great psychological serial killer thrillers. Very true, Andy. Yeah, it just became a real case of let us just try and capitalise on the Halloween market. Do you think Halloween, you think Saw, but again, it, 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 the gore, it just became torture porn. Uh, very quickly and uh, yeah it really took away from that first film Andy thank you so much for taking a look at the sequels that really diluted the impact of uh, the original film Andy always great talking to you and we'll chat again next week we love movies with Gordon Hayden spin now we're going to stay with all things horror but this time we're going to look at the work of Stephen King and find out why his work is so adaptable for the big and small screen and joining me is Chris Wasser. Chris, good to speak to you again. Chris, yeah, why is it, do you think, Hollywood has just this fascination with Stephen King and time and time again, they go back to his work to adapt? 
They do. They keep going back to the well. And I think Stephen King is second only to William Shakespeare, which is a weird connection wow. in terms of writers whose work has been adapted for the stage, for the screen. If you go to IMDb, and it may not seem like much, but it really is. I mean, if you go to IMDb, you'll see that Stephen King is listed has a credit on more than 250 productions. And Gordon, that, that might have even gone up you know, since this morning, you know, uh, with, with more projects being announced every day. And that's executive producer roles, writer, adapted by roles uh, uh, at one stage, even a director. And you kind of think to yourself, how is it, what is the fascination here? And I think for me, when, you know, I've read nearly everything by the man, um, I, when, when I'm lost inside one of his books, I'm thinking to myself, this is almost like reading a screenplay. And he's very good at, he is terrific actually, at setting up, scenes in his head that almost seem just absolutely ready for for the screen or in some cases even for the stage and at one stage he had um uh his one of uh, stephen king's first editor his name was bill thompson he actually said to, to to king back at the start that you know it was almost like he had a projector in his head and he agreed with that because what he liked to do is every chapter that he wrote he liked to leave you know on a on a, on a cliffhanger so that if you were going to put down the book you would be you'd be thinking about it all day you know he had all of these amazing subplots amazing supporting characters it was almost like he was writing miniseries in his, in his head so you know if you're a major studio and you're looking at for a star carrie if you're looking at later even cujo or christine the film is there. You just need to, you know, like work out how long it's going to be. You need to hire somebody just to kind of, you know, uh, uh, split up the dialogue. The film is absolutely there. So I think that's why, uh, you know, it's and also the stories are just sensational. Um, you know, one of my, my, my least favorite things about Stephen King, and this got made fun of in last last year's It Chapter Two, is that he's not very good at endings. And that is absolutely true. He cannot write a decent ending. And I don't believe he has ever written a decent ending. But, you know, Four fifths of the story is 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 not too is not too shabby. So you know he's certainly he's one of the best storytellers in the world. I think. But what what happened with Carrie as a matter of interest, Chris? Because this was a real turning point in his life because he did have an awful lot of self doubt and with that manuscript, did am I right in saying he threw it in the bin? But it was his yes. wife that said to him, "Hang on a second, you've got something here." He did um he was teaching at that stage so this is uh this, this is more than 50 years ago he was teaching he had already written three novels they were sitting on his shelf he wrote the first three pages of carrie and he was struggling with it because he was writing from a female perspective and he also took on this enormous task of writing a novel that would explain itself with but you know, by using three different narrators and also by using uh news reports and letters uh, anyone who's ever read Carrie will know that this tells its story in such a unique way um, that it's almost strange that Brian De Palma thought, look, I'm going to tell this a bit more conventionally. Um, but his wife, uh, Tahita uh, King, she dug out these papers that he threw in the bin and said, look, I'm going to help you with this. I'm going to help you, especially with the female perspective. Now, it's a pity that she didn't continue to help him with the female perspective, because that's also another flaw of Stephen King's work as time goes on, that his female characters haven't always been that great. But he sold uh, the story, uh, made two and a half grand off the back of it straight away. Um, but within a few months, um, it got picked up internationally. And 30, a 30,000 copy run turned into a million copy run. And all of a sudden, Stephen King had 200 grand in his back pocket. And then film rights, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
a bidding war for film rights started. And in the end, it was Brian De Palma who picked it up. Now, it's a weird one because Brian De Palma was taking a story that, as I say, is quite unconventional when you read it, but also wanted to kind of leave his own mark, as some directors after him would do. I mean, from Stanley Kubrick to Frank Darabont in terms of changing endings, changing up, you know, uh, adding a bit of a, a visual flair that might not have been there. What Brian De Palma did with Carrie, the split screens, that was just genius and it was almost like reminding um uh, uh the, the the viewer that you're you're watching a novel play out uh, but this story of a girl with telekinetic powers who is uh you know so badly picked on at school uh by her mom sissy space uh, giving just an, an incredible an incredibly vulnerable but in the end frightening performance and who just one day, you know, at her prom after, you know, a particularly bad uh, 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 bout of bullying, absolutely loses it, uh, <laughs> you know, resulting in the absolute massacre of everybody in this small town. It is just an incredible story. And it made for one of the most frightening films of that year. And also, I like how it was the first... It was the first Stephen King adaptation, Gordon, but it was also the first time that, as I say, a director was doing something different, but also the first time that a director toyed with Stephen King's endings. And you think that he would have gotten the message back then, but he didn't. It's because for anyone who read it, or for anyone who's seen the film and hasn't read the novel, that hand coming out of the grave at the end, that's not in the book. That's very true. And there are certain filmmakers that you go, ah, oh, they just did such stellar work with Stephen King's um, adaptations. Frank Darabont being one, Rob Reiner. Steve, you would kind of go look at Stanley Kubrick and The Shining was held in such high regard as like one of the great horror films. It wasn't a massive hit, believe it or not, when it, when it came out. And Stephen no, King no. has always been incredibly vocal about how he just did not like what Stanley Kubrick did. I think there was a fallout between the pair of them as well because of how much Stanley Kubrick wanted to change. And I think Stanley Kubrick wasn't particularly kind in terms of his appraisal of Stephen King's um, uh, uh, screenplay for The Shining either. And I think that kind of rubbed King up the wrong way. I'll get into that now in just a minute, Chris, but I just want to focus first on um, one filmmaker that really has gotten King's work right. And that is, I mentioned him, Frank Darabont. He was part of this. Tell me about it. Was this um, Dollar Club? T tell me a little bit about this, uh, this Dollar Baby movement, I should say. Um, yeah. What happened there? Well, Stephen King basically started something called the Dollar Baby Movement. And it was a deal where he decided that, you know, I'm going to pay it forward <laughs> somewhat. I'm going to grant young aspiring filmmakers the rights to any of his short stories, not his films, because that would just be madness. Um, but, you know, upcoming filmmakers, the rights to his stories in exchange for a dollar. So obviously, you know, terms and conditions would apply and that, you know, Stephen King, if anybody, you know, actually became famous if the film went on to their money, he would still retain some, some, you know, major film rights if someone else wanted to adapt it for a feature. Um, and it really, it's even, even saying it now, all of these years later, it doesn't really make much sense to me, but I think it was just Stephen King wanted to see what the next, you know, future filmmakers of America were doing. And Frank Darabont was one of these filmmakers who asked for the rights to a short story by Stephen King called The Woman in the Room. He paid a dollar for those rights and he made a short story, which he then, uh, which he made a short film, which he then sent to Stephen King. Stephen King watched it and thought, this is pretty good. Um, and he put it on a shelf and thought nothing of it. You know, he was going around saying this guy, Frank Darabont, is going to do things. But, you know, how many times does Stephen King say that about, you know, writers that way? How many times does Stephen King tweet about writers that he loves and filmmakers that he loves that we never hear of again? But with Frank Dar when Frank Darabont came to him later on, contacted him and said, I would love to make a feature film based on another short story of yours called The Shawshank Redemption. 
Stephen King took the video off the shelf and said, you know what? You did such a good job there. Let's do it. But obviously, we're, you know, you're going to have to pay more than a dollar. So he went away and made the Shawshank Redemption. But the, the difference of Frank Darabont, and this is what King loved about him at the start, was that he seemed to understand the stories better than any other filmmaker. Another filmmaker would have been Rob Reiner, who completely got what King was about. He made uh, Stand By Me, which is based on the Stephen King story, The Body. He also made Misery. But Darabont, he was very good at capturing what I think is the scariest part of, you know, even like even though he made the Shawshank, he made the Shawshank Redemption, he made The Mist, uh, he made The Green Mile. But what Darabont has done that no other filmmaker has been able to do is capture the real horror in Stephen King stories. Because I think it doesn't matter if you're dealing with haunted cars or haunted dogs or, you know, uh, towns populated by vampires. The most frightening aspect of Stephen King stories are the people themselves, because some of the people in Stephen King stories are so messed up yeah. and so just that nothing will ever fix them. And so Darabont focused on the human drama, focused on the human horrors. And that's what really shines in The Shawshank Redemption, because it's not a story about supernatural anything. It's just a story about people. And again, in The Mist, I know we're dealing with like 100 feet, you know, huge monsters like walking around the supermarket. But the scariest thing is how the people tear each other apart when they're trapped in this supermarket. And again, with the Green Mile, the scariest thing about that, it's not, you know, this uh, uh, messianic figure at the end of uh, Death Row. It's not, you know, the other prisoners kind of, you know, uh, the, the, the crimes that the other prisoners committed. It's just about the decisions and the, 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 the guilt that the guards have to live with. So Darabont just got King's work. And I think another great thing, Gordon, is that for every film that Darabont made by Stephen King, he changed the endings to all of them. And actually, they turned out better. Yeah, because the mist, when you think of that ending, oh, God. Oh, that stayed with me for days, Gordon. I mean, even thinking about it now, it is one of the best endings in horror cinema. And it'll just... You, you, I, I know I always say this, you will need a hug and a cup of tea after that ending. It is oh, just horrible. If anyone hasn't seen it, oh my God, watch The Mist later today and let us know, tweet us and include the hashtag we love movies because, oh my God, that ending. You're so right, Chris, we'll stay with you. Uh, speaking of endings, I want to just uh, jump back to Stanley Kubrick and The Shining. That last shot, spoiler alert for those that haven't seen The Shining yet, but that, but when the camera does zoom in on the, the picture and we see the character of Jack Torrance front and centre along with all these other people, um, over the years it's all been speculated um, that the, the hotel has suddenly now, he's another victim, he's become a, he has become part of the hotel, or has he always been part of the hotel and he is yeah. a reincarnation of somebody and um, that w- once um, lived and worked in the in the hotel. What's your take as a matter of interest, Chris, on that parting shot from The Shining? I think it's an unnecessary gimmick and I always have thought that. Um, I really, I love The Shining uh, and my favourite thing, I thought the scariest thing about The Shining, the novel, is Jack Torrance completely falling apart and knowing that he's falling apart and his guilt because of that, because he's turning into his own father. And he, you know, it's, it's, and it's this slow, steady, uh, just implosion. Uh, and, and, and when you eventually get to him, you know, running right in the hotel, you do feel as though King has earned this story. He's earned this, 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 this just this uh, horrible climax with the film. Um, none of that is there. Um, 
Although I do love this film and it was such a pleasure to watch it again on the big screen before lockdown in the, in the, in, in the lighthouse. And I adore it. I think it's visually just magnificent. I think the performances are so entertaining. I thought Stanley Kubrick made a great, uh, uh, a great horror film. It's not Stephen King's novel and Stephen King hated this, this adaptation. Um, he's changed his mind on it so many times. You know, he's gone, he's, he, he just, he continues to flip flop on it. I mean, you know, look, he, get, he, he allowed for Dr. Sleep to be made, which is actually a sequel to both the film and the novel. So I'm not really sure how he feels about it these days. But what his thinking was that, you know, look, Stanley Kubrick went ahead and did his own thing. And he doesn't like that Stanley Kubrick went ahead and did his own thing because he completely changed the story. He turned some of the characters just into, you know, especially Shelley Duvall's character. She's just a screaming maniac in the film. She's mm. much more of a, a three-dimensional. She's a proper character in the novel. Um, it's it, you know it's frightening it's 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 effective they are two different beasts but that image at the end it doesn't make any sense it really doesn't and you, you know Kubrick tried to you know he wanted to leave it to the audience some people have told me what their idea of it is I just think it was just one of those uh, uh, last minute decisions that you know oh let's completely mess with the audience's mind here I think it's a bit of a gimmick to be honest. Yeah, it was one of those ones I kind of it did leave me a bit like oh, it felt unnecessary if I'm being honest with you. Chris, very finally, because unfortunately we have very little time left, but just very quickly, what are for you, in no particular order, your say your your five favorite Stephen King films? Misery. Absolutely misery is up there. Rob Reiner's classic, uh, 30 years old this year. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know the gist, crazy fan, holds writer hostage, Kathy Bates, James Kahn. Uh, horrible scene with a sledgehammer, which um, as oh, yeah. as <laughs> as as bad as it is, it's not as bad as what actually actually does in the novel. And I'll just leave it there. Um, another one for me is fourteen oh eight, which is one of the uh, the few uh, modern adaptations of Stephen King's work. I mean, some of the adaptations of the last couple of years have been great. But there was a while there where everything uh, Hollywood touched belonging to King turned out to be a bit of a disaster. But 1408 was not one of those disasters. Samuel Jackson, John Cusack. John Cusack plays this cynical uh, uh, writer who likes to go around America ruining um, <laughs> ruining our, our, our that some places might actually be haunted. He debunks uh, haunted hotels. One day he comes across a place that genuinely is haunted and he cannot escape. Also, one of the most terrifying endings to a film that I've ever seen. Uh, so that's 1408. Uh, I'm going to go with the first ish, the, uh, the the miniseries, even though it's not, so we're not dealing with a film here, so I'm going to cheat. It's, it's, it's not a great film. It's actually, you know, some parts of it are downright awful. But the reason I'm putting it in is because Pennywise, in this case, played by Tim Curry, that was so frightening and it did not need any of the CGI Coswell and all it did not need any of the uh, mad special effects that we saw in the most recent version. Oh, I have uh, to say this guy. The new, yeah, the new version did leave me cold. Sorry, Chris, I'd jump in there. I'd have to push you on the, the last two for time, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, Salem's Lot. Again, we're dealing with the miniseries here, but it is one of those, uh, 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 you know, series that I saw when I was far too young and I am afraid to open my curtains at night now because I think I'm going to see a floating vampire outside the window. Great atmosphere, uh, 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 great performances in there. And I think we'll have to go back to Carrie uh, because it is the original. It is one of the best. Uh, it's visually uh, spectacular and that ending every time completely gets me. Chris Wasser, thank you so much for looking at the film adaptations of Stephen King. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And that is our lot for this week on We Love Movies. Thank you so much for your company. We're back again from eight on spin. From me, Gordon Hayden, and the rest of the team, enjoy your Sunday, and we'll chat to you next week.